Gary Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. At the end of the 20th century, long after Gerald Ford and Herbert Hoover and others had their own presidential museums and libraries, America's greatest president still had no official museum and library to call his own. That changed in 2005 with the opening of the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Fans and critics have had a lot to say about the museum, but they agree on one thing. There's no other presidential museum quite like it. Today we'll find out more from the museum's chief historical consultant, Illinois State Historian Thomas Schwartz, on Civil War Talk Radio. Onboard computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to World Talk Radio. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking from East Carolina University, but my opinions are my own and not the university's. <clears throat> Today, talking with the state historian of Illinois, Tom Schwartz. Tom, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you here. Let me start by asking a question that I've actually never gotten around to asking you before. We've known each other for a while. How does one get to be a state historian? <laughs> um, interesting question and um, no good answer, really. Um, I guess it's being in the right place at the right time. Um, Illinois, as I've discovered, is one of the few states that has such a position. Um, and... The uh, first state historian was a uh, very well-renowned and respected Lincoln scholar, uh, Paul Engel, and he was given the title in lieu of a pay raise back in the 40s. Um, and so, in many ways, it's more honorific than anything else. Uh, but I came to work for the state in 1985 as curator of the Lincoln Collection, being the second person in that particular job title, replacing James T. Hickey, who uh, was the first to have it in 1957. 
And um, then in 93, the state historian had resigned, and they uh, named me to the post. In lieu of a promotion, I suppose. Well, uh, (laughs) it it was to assume uh, many more duties for a a modest increase in in salary. Because I see where this could lead. I mean, next year you could become the... State historian deluxe or something without actually getting any more money. Well, actually, I've I've now accumulated some more job titles. I'm director of collections and research at the Presidential Library Museum. So you see, I mean, it's it's um, people think that it's it's uh, you know it's it's a wonderful job and you know all of these wonderful titles, um, but it's um, you know you really have to be creative in order to live on it. I, I imagine so. Public history, practicing history in, in the public sphere, is has its uh, rewards certainly, but uh, challenges too. And financial rewards usually aren't aren't top of the list. But now, following the steps of Paul Engel, and wasn't Jay Monahan once the state historian? Yeah, it went from Paul Engel to Jay Monahan to Harry Pratt. So, you know, you had you're, you're in three, some big footsteps there. Yeah, three distinguished Lincoln scholars. So what uh, what do you do as state historian? Obviously, you're, you're heavily involved with the Lincoln Museum there now, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but before the museum was was built, what what kind of duties does a state historian fulfill? Uh, the uh, one of the main functions is to administer certain programs. Uh, we have, for example, a um, we give out a, a financial stipends to dissertations, um, well, to graduate students who are writing dissertations and Illinois-related topics. Um, There's a major conference that we uh, run annually, which combines um, research from both the academic realm and also from kind of the interested layperson, uh, which provides a very nice forum for um, the exchange between those audiences. Um, a lot of liaisoning with county, uh, local, and, and statewide historical organizations, uh, uh, and helping to promote, really, the, the study and uh, dissemination of Illinois history. Now, you're trained as a historian. Uh, you have your doctorate. I have my doctorate, yeah. Do you, do you get to practice history as such? Is this more administrative? Do you actually get to get in the archives and write things and re- read and speak? And I do uh, extensive speaking. Um, my writing is severely curtailed, though I do get some articles and book reviews done every year. Um, unfortunately, um, no book. Uh, the work involved in, in getting uh, the library and museum built and opened has been a tremendous, uh, taken a tremendous amount of my time of late. But uh, hopefully, I'm looking forward to maybe getting some time to do that. And probably as important to start putting material on the web. Uh, we've digitized most of the collection, and now it's a matter of cataloging uh, the Lincoln Collection, I should say. And it's a matter of cataloging it and writing content to place it uh, on the web page. When you say digitized, does this mean that 
you're taking letters and the text is now readable online, or you're taking artifacts and putting the images online. What? How does one digitize a museum collection? We color microfilmed all of the, the manuscript letters of Lincoln, uh, as well as our artifacts, our prints and photographs, um, and painting, sculpture, um, the campaign ribbons and tokens and, and the like. Uh, and then we've created an electronic image off of the color microfilm. The color microfilm then becomes the archival copy and the electronic image becomes the one that we manipulate uh, for placement uh, uh, on our website. Um, the cataloging defines uh, what the image is uh, and helps you in uh, with the search mechanism. But, is this uh, at a point where, where someone can now go today and look at these things online, or, or is this a project you're working on? This is a project we're working on. One can come to the library and see what we have in terms of our beta tester, I mean, what, what we have internally mm -hmm. on our intranet, but it's not ready yet for the internet. Well, that's something people will look forward to, I'm sure, the chance to, to see those documents if you're not close to Springfield and, and want to really get a look at what's in the collection. That would be a great opportunity. Well, that's one of the things that we have um, been, uh, well, we've received numerous requests from scholars, not only around the country, but uh, abroad. And uh, there are a great many American studies programs abroad that um, they're very uh, limited opportunities for people, uh, for example, in the United Kingdom that want to be in American studies to actually have the funds to come and spend sufficient amount of time doing their research in, in the various archives in the United States. So the more that these things can be put online, um, the greater opportunities for people with an interest in American studies abroad will have um, in order to be able to do original research. Well, that's certainly a, an important thing, and it, it will be a huge benefit to a lot of people. You mentioned how much time it takes to put a museum together, and you know, when you and I met over 10 years ago now, I was at that time working at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we were building a new museum there, maybe 8,000 square feet of permanent exhibit space, $6 million budget. You have just completed a project about 10 times that in, in both dimensions. That must have taken uh, an, an incredible amount of time to work on something like that. How, how did you first get involved in that project? And the, the genesis for the project began about 1990. Um, by then, Congressman Richard Durbin, who's now a uh, state senator from Illinois, and um, uh, or well, U.S. senator, I should say, uh, from Illinois, and he saw the collection for the first time, the Lincoln Collection. He was wanting some photographs to have be reproduced and uh, to send as gifts to friends, and was just amazed that. All of these materials, original materials, had, were in the state's possession. And yet, at that time, we were located underneath the old state capitol in Springfield, Illinois. 
and um, we're literally um, underground, out of sight from from the public's purview. And so his initial efforts um, at least gained support for the idea. Uh, he was not able to find, to find the federal funding uh, for it. But that was then picked up by, by other people uh, and, and several governors uh, to eventually get the funding for it, uh, $115 million for uh, two buildings, a three-quarter block structure housing the collections of the Illinois State Historical Library, um, and that has now been renamed the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library Collections, and then a, an entire city block, which would house, um, would become the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum. Um, in deciding how to do the museum, we did not take a traditional approach. Most museums are based upon a discrete body of collections so that the building actually houses the collections and then showcases them. What we uh, realized that we had to do, since many of our collections are actually historic sites scattered throughout Illinois, um, we knew from decades of experience of visitors coming to Springfield that they were looking for a place that would give them an overview of the Lincoln story, um, as well as being able to see original things, things that he wrote, things that he owned. And so by designing the museum less to become a building to showcase and house original artifacts, we built the museum with an eye towards telling the Lincoln story. And rather than being the destination, rather being the gateway where people come, get introduced to the Lincoln story, and then go out and explore what we call the Lincoln landscape to go see these actual places, not only in Illinois, but Kentucky, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C. And indeed, by not defining the Lincoln landscape, you can also send them to places that seriously study uh, the Lincoln story and legacy, places such as the Lincoln Center in Tirana, Albania, or Macy University, which has the Tokyo Lincoln Center, uh, or these American Studies programs uh, at various universities, such as Oxford. And so by doing it this way, um, you really are able to take people's kind of ignite that interest in the museum and get them to go out and explore the Lincoln theme um, in all of its depth and richness, uh, rather than to give them uh, a sense that everything that they need to know about Lincoln they can find in, in one building. And while you can't obviously find it all in one building, Certainly that story doesn't require you actually going to Albania or other places. Uh, the visitor to your museum in Springfield is just a few minutes away from Lincoln's home, uh, from the law office where he practiced, a few more minutes away from 
the Lincoln Tomb, and then a little further out to New Salem. So you, you really, a lot of these sites really are clustered right around you. Uh, a lot of them are, um, and we've created a walking tour uh, of downtown Spring of, of Lincoln's downtown Springfield. Uh, reproduced since many of the buildings have since been torn down. We've found images and created signage which explains what Lincoln would have seen and then tie it into kind of larger, broader, kind of cultural, social, and and political um, history of the time. Um, And that has become what we call the Looking for Lincoln Project, which we're doing with other communities, 12 other communities. Actually, it's it's grown larger than that, but um, like within a 150-mile radius of of Springfield. the one thing we found is that people respond best to the stories. Um, you, you know, they, 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 the old state capital is, is very impressive, but it doesn't explain itself. Um, it, people go there, and what they respond to are the stories about Lincoln and Douglas and the connections of the building. Um, and so what we've been telling these these outlying communities is that that's what they they need to do that they have a unique connection with Lincoln that no other community has and what they need to do is to develop that uh, to collect those stories to to do an inventory of their historical materials whether they be buildings or artifacts or whatever and then work them in to a uh, historical narrative, uh, as well as uh, also keeping in mind the visitor experience, the kinds of amenities that that people would need. Um, And so in in doing that, um, these smaller communities are becoming part of um, the, the museum experience. Uh, the museum kind of, again, becomes a way to direct people out to these outlying communities so that they continue to explore, you know, the Lincoln story uh, on site. And, you know, uh, again, this, this this Lincoln landscape that we, we're... Uh, you use the phrase gateway. This is a way to introduce people into this Lincoln world rather than the, the destination, the, the one place where they would get the entire story. Right, right. Now, in in museum speak, uh, people talk about artifact-driven exhibits versus storyline-driven exhibits. Uh, traditionally, uh, the museums you and I grew up going to might have a glass case with uh, 20 different variations on, say, a Civil War musket, Enfield and Springfield and a Belgian import and so on. And the artifacts would be the, the museum, the collection of artifacts would be it. In the last 20 years, that's evolved where many more exhibits are now driven by the story and the artifacts illustrate the story. You're suggesting you've gone almost a step further and saying the story really is primary uh, and the artifacts aren't necessarily even in the museum in some cases. They're they're in outlying communities. Is that uh, a fair characterization? Well, I think that this, I mean, there, there's an important connection between the story and the artifacts. But I... Uh, what, one of the things that, that we've discovered is that you, you typically museums assumed a certain level, basic knowledge of the visitor in coming 
um, and understanding and being able to interpret uh, the the artifacts in, in the museum. I think increasingly, um, people have come to the conclusion that you, that you can't assume um, that kind of that that that, that basic knowledge. Um, and so, what uh, we are, are trying to do in, in, in creating kind of these immersive environments um, and, and being driven by the story is for people to first of all realize that Lincoln is not an abstraction. He's not an iconic figure, um, but he was a real flesh and blood human being. Um, and to create a sense of, of, of empathy between the visitor and Lincoln and the Lincoln story so that when they end up seeing the original artifacts, it will resonate with them rather than for them to immediately be seeing things, the, the, the artifacts, without having kind of any basic uh, understanding of, of their meaning. Now, the, the other thing, though, that be beyond the artifacts is, is the landscape itself. Um, uh, you know as well uh, with your your tenure at the Lincoln Museum that um, the early collectors and biographers and, and Lincoln buffs used to get together and go on what they called pilgrimages um, to all of the the holy Lincoln shrines. Uh, they you know they get in their cars and at a time when uh, you didn't have that many concrete highways and. Um, you know, make these ventures out to to the original place, um, and so that the, the the power of place is 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 very important um, in in the whole Lincoln story, uh, and and kind of the 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 study of Lincoln, and so uh, it's not that um, we're trying to bring that back into the story, uh, so that it's not. Um, something that you can do virtually what we're encouraging people to do is is to, to go back and have that sense of adventure and exploration and discovery of of visiting uh, the actual sites um, and the other thing that it affords us is obviously we don't have to reinvent the wheel we don't have to go into great depth about Lincoln's time in New Salem um, if we're encouraging people to go see the site itself it makes more sense for people to hear about Lincoln's time in New Salem at New Salem than to go in it in great detail and depth in the museum. And, and New Salem is, is maybe a 20-minute drive from, from your front door. Right. So right. there's no reason why someone, having learned what New Salem is, gotten a taste of it, a hint of it from your museum, won't then be encouraged to say, well, let's go see the place. Absolutely. Now, you talk about telling the story that, that people are attracted by stories, by narratives. And I, I think academic historians are finally have come to recognize that in the last 20 years, uh, that you can't just analyze. You have to tell a story to make people interested enough to read the history. Right. But you also have uh, another thing historians all realize is that there's no one story about anything in, in the past, and certainly about a character as complicated and self-contradictory and, and deep as Abraham Lincoln, there are many, many stories, we could say an infinite number of stories, all of them true, that you might tell about Lincoln. And 
no matter what your resources, you still have to limit yourself and make a choice. Uh, absolutely. But one of the things that we also um, do throughout the museum is to show multiple uh, points of view uh, in, in analyzing things such as his Emancipation Proclamation and the issue of slavery. So that um, showing that the discord and the disagreement um, l leads people to know that you know that it, it, there there wasn't um, there isn't a monolithic uh, view here that uh, act, Lincoln was contentious then he remains a contentious figure today. Well, I'd like to explore this a little deeper. It's time for us to take a, a brief break here, and we'll step away for a minute. But we'll come back with Tom Schwartz, Illinois State Historian and the Chief Consultant on the new Lincoln Museum in Springfield, Illinois. We'll be back with Tom Schwartz on Civil War Talk Radio.